0: My understanding and my thought process around Bitcoin is that I think that if we get more Black banks in those communities where you have a better opportunity to remove bias, to remove racism, where you can secure a loan for a home and you can use Bitcoin as your savings account and use a Black bank or bank, a credit union, whatever the case may be, as your checking account.
1: Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. Today's guest is author and content creator, Dadu MMITANA. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Dadu, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. How are you? How
0: are you doing, Mark? I'm glad to be here. Happy to... Uh you know kick this thing off and and get into some really good conversations about about uh, bitcoin and um you know the progressive movement.
1: Absolutely. Well please introduce yourself to our listeners.
0: Hi everyone, my name is Daru Mimentana. Um I am an author, content creator and just an overall crypto investor. You know we'll get into the weeds and, and and into the intricacies of of more about me but that's just a quick intro of who I am.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. So As we were talking about uh, before recording, I think what I would like to do before diving into the nitty gritty of Bitcoin is to take a step back and try to better understand the banking and financial services industry as it relates to uh, the black experience in America. I know that's a huge question, but really, I think it's a good jumping off point to better understand why uh, Bitcoin is beneficial.
0: Yeah, most definitely you know, this is so, it is so multi-layered what that exactly means for, you know, people of color or people coming from um, disenfranchised portions of the community. And I think like one of the biggest issues that we have with wealth inequality, um, you know, in the face of, of government spending or social programs is that um, when you look at the stats, when you look at the The wealthiest 10% of Americans, they own 89% of all the stocks, right? And and the wealth gap is only going to get worse. Um, If people don't take action, because a lot of these purported social programs, they don't teach or educate on financial literacy. Um, Those 10% of people are are generally getting a different education towards stock ownership, delayed gratification and education compared to poor communities or groups of people who do not understand how money works and what it can do when you pass it down generationally, um, you know that's why I write, and that's why I have a lot of article work around these kind of conversations. And I think that um, people have to take action now or fall further behind. Um, if you look at the pandemic, that exposed a lot. And the first step is education. And I think that um, being under this condition of a, of a welfare state for, for generations leaves you in a type of suspended animation. And if you begin to expect to be fed, clothed, and protected by the government, um, as history shows, that quickly can become like somewhat of an abusive relationship. And Bitcoin frees you from that hand, from that hand of control and that, um, you know, handout mentality. So, you know, you have to provide a proof of work to gain some, and that should should and will empower people to do so as time goes on. In your writing, you've described the relationship as, uh, in
1: part, a mistrust of the banking system and the financial sector. How do you actually see that mistrust playing out within Black families and Black communities?
0: Um, that mistrust is, is very, very wide-reaching. So when you think about, for example, um, you know, there's scenarios where you know, Black customers run a higher risk of being racially profiled at banks, for example you know, all it takes is for a bank employee to assume that your check isn't valid and claim you're committing fraud or something along those lines. So when you have um, Black or Latino customers that attempt to get loans for cars or homes, they may be denied without recourse. Um, You know, that's scary and that can happen a lot, especially in America. So a lot of people from those communities, people of color, they will go to a check cashers instead To liquidate their paychecks because they feel there's less judgment there. Or, in the case for many, they don't have a bank account or they're unbanked. So, you know, the gag about places like payday loans and check cashers, for example, are they're designed to steal your wealth. You know, that's why they litter the impoverished communities that you see um, them currently in. Uh, People are already barely making ends meet. And then they're being taxed by the government only to get hit with large fees from check cashers or some ridiculous interest rate from payday loans on a cash advance. So I think that that's what creates a lot of the mistrust and the disconnect between um, traditional banking and, you know, just having a bank account, investing in a lot of things along those lines. It's like a little bit of trauma there.
1: If I may, how has that played out in your own life and perhaps uh, growing up with your family?
0: Yeah, so I have a series out where I kind of talk about what building generational wealth looks like when you adopt Bitcoin from a from an African American perspective, and I have a funny um, quote that I always use. Where when I was growing up, you know, I'm first generation. Uh, my parents are immigrants to this country, and a funny thing that I always say about uh, people of color is that money is only brought up on two occasions: um, when you don't have any, or when somebody owes you some. And I really, really can relate to that because the conversation around money doesn't really happen. It doesn't really exist outside of things that require pressure or last minute decisions. And I think that that is just ubiquitous in our culture. And that's something that really, really needs to change. And I'm doing my part, people like you are doing your part. And it's just, it really, really starts with education. It really, really starts with removing that fear of money and removing that fear of the possibilities of what money can do for you. So for me coming up as a, as a young, young man, um, I didn't really understand money or understand finance until I got out of college and I started working in the traditional banking industry. So I got to actually see what large sums of money can do, how it's distributed, and who gets that money and who doesn't. So as it relates to uh, the individual
1: experience, uh, another article written in Bitcoin Magazine by Ulrich uh, Patio, I'm going to quote it here. He says, quote, these specific Overspending categories are clear indicators of a strong internal force that values, quote, being seen over growing wealth, end quote. Mm -hmm. And he's referring to uh, spending money on clothes and shoes and things like that. And so his rationale is that that behavior uh, is due to this mistrust. It's due to an inflationary monetary system and a sense of exclusion from the monetary system. Would you agree with his assertion and the reasons behind it?
0: Yes, definitely. I would agree with a lot of the points that Ulrich has. Um, Uric is actually a really good friend of mine. We we both uh, write for Bitcoin Mag. And I think that he's kind of spot on with some of his um analogies on, you know, that conspicuous consumption and not really um taking money seriously, or it's it's fleeting, like I always say. So to get to to answer your question, I would say that when you have a cultural perspective of money, right? You have people from the African American or the Latino American community where when you get money, the first thing that you want to do is you want to purchase something to make you feel better about yourself or to, or to be embraced by your community, whether it's a fancy car, jewelry, or big home. You want to you want to kind of highlight that you're living the American dream because you've been outcasted from every other situation in America that pertains to that American dream. So, you know, you're going to have a lot. And then also culturally with the music, with what you see on TV, what people consume intellectually, that plays a big role as well, because all of the characters or actors or actresses that you see looking from your, you know, coming from your culture or from your community, they're all kind of perpetuating that narrative of, you know, live fast, die young, spend it while you're here, YOLO, you know, all the terms that you see a lot of the rap artists doing now, that has a major impact on the psychology of young adults, young teenagers that are just getting into getting their first credit card, getting their first bank account, purchasing their first home. It forces you to battle with yourself mentally to say, do I look good for people in the public or do I retain wealth generationally for my family in private? And you have to fight with that. And that's something that, you know, we all struggle with. And I think that As we get more clarity around what Bitcoin is and how this asset can actually change that mentality, you know, we'll get there eventually.
1: You've said, and I'm again reading uh, verbatim here, we always need confirmation or approval to invest in something because we do not feel valued in our jobs or society. So the money we make is quickly spent on items to trick us into feeling value, valued. I found this to be obviously a very profound statement, and I'm hoping you can elaborate that on a little bit Further, as you just did, but even on a more granular level to help us better understand that wanting to feel valued in a society that doesn't often honor that value?
0: I think it really boils down to tribalism, right? I think that it humans have this innate nature to want to be, you know, supported and embraced, and they want to feel like they're a part of a group. And I think that that, that transcends race and gender and you know, religion. I think that that's just an innate human nature. And I feel like, you know, historically in this country, you can look at um, certain demographics. And even in one of my articles, I talk about um, the great immigration of, you know, Ellis Island, when a lot of Europeans came to this country, you know, they dealt with a lot of the hardships as well. They dealt with segregation. They dealt with having to live in the slums. They dealt with, you know, I always use the analogy of the gangs of New York. So the Irish would go against the Germans. The Germans would go against the Italians. And I think that's just a natural process of, um, you know, coming to a new country, trying to find your roots and just really trying to figure out how do you get to the top? How do you get, you know, closer to that American dream? I think for people from my community, have it harder because we were pretty much left out of that conversation. And not only were we left out of that conversation, but we continue to be left out of that conversation. So whenever we harness money, that money can either be seized, taxed, squatted from us. It forces you to be in a place of, um, you know, confliction. You feel like you're, you know, you're not secure in the things that you hold. And just to elaborate more on what you're saying, Mark, I think that um you know as we evolve as a culture as people start to wake up and gain more financial literacy i think that they're going to use us, use some of those experiences they had with their their parents whether they're baby boomers or whatever where they'll find um a silver lining with some of the mistakes that they made and how do they go forth in the future to secure their wealth and not only secure it but be able to distribute it equally around humanity where there's no more competition there's no more Um, you know, this battle to be number one. It's just all humanity's won. There's no reason to be we're number one or we're number two. And I think that the fiat system kind of creates that kind of division and it creates that kind of strange competition that a lot of people don't even know why they're in the rat race, but they're in it. Before I go on to my last question, before jumping into
1: Bitcoin, can you elaborate more on what behavior you feel like the fiat system is incentivizing. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term fiat, why don't you define that and again, uh, extrapolate on what you mean by uh, the behaviors that a fiat system incentivizes?
0: You know, fiat by definition means an official decree issued by an authority. So, you know, a fiat way of thinking is when your thoughts are issued by any form of authority or suppressed in response to thinking critically on your own. And I think that a lot of people that may go over their heads, right? But I think that as you start to break down and get more of an understanding of what fiat is and why it kind of creates this aura of um you know competitiveness and and you know feeling like you have to one up another individual to to gain it is because the money is fleeting. So if you earn $100 for a paycheck, inflation is slowly eating away at your money. So it puts you in a position where you always have to get up again and chase the same amount of money, but you have to work harder to gain the same amount the next day. And I think that that, in in essence, is what is going to create a type of form of of aggression or a type of form of, of a competitive nature where you may remove some of your morality to gain a paycheck where as if that money was secure and sound, you'd be more of a moral person and you would think about the other. You would think about the poor. You would think about the disenfranchised because you're not chasing something that's running from you.
1: Absolutely. 100% agree. My last question before moving to Bitcoin. Generally, as progressives, we believe in increasing services and monetary support for those in need. In your writing, you've alluded to feeling differently. Is that, is that true? Do you think that some of that support as you described, the welfare state has actually been a
0: disservice? You know, that's very interesting. So like the welfare state for me is one of those things where um, a book I had read really recently, which was a Sovereign Individual. And that kind of really opened up my eyes to like what this whole concept around the welfare state is and what does it mean to me personally. And I feel like in a lot of cases, um, the welfare state is beneficial in short spurts. So, you have people from our community, from disenfranchised communities that may actually need that funding and need that help to actually get off their feet, or they find themselves in some form of hardship where they uh, may get off their feet. And I want to say that, like, you know, the welfare state can also be a detriment because generationally it forces people from my community to have to kind of not be who they truly are, or they get a cap put on them. They get a glass ceiling put on them where you can only make a certain amount of income or you're removed from welfare or from food stamps, for example. And I think that it's human nature that you want to innovate and you want to get things independently on your own. When you have to have your hand held by a government entity an institution or anything, I think that that stifles innovation and it stifles creativity and it forces you to become um, in a state of of paralysis because you're going to be fearful to, you know, become an entrepreneur. You're going to be fearful to kind of jump out of the box and say, you know what? I don't feel comfortable receiving a handout. I want to work for what I got. I want to actually be able to be proud of the home that I bought off of you know, me busting my butt at a job 40 hours a week. And, you know, those things not everybody wants to do, but there's some form of pride in doing things like that. And I think that that's what's uh, being destroyed when you start talking about the welfare state. And also additionally, um, traditionally, when you look at governments that, you know, whether it's a a socialist regime or things along those lines, you can run into, it's like having like a, a abusive relationship with the parent. So it's like a government can become your parent and you have to do exactly what they say, how they say it. And if you don't do it, you're going to be punished or put in the corner for some particular reason. And that's fine when you're in a family structure, but when you're dealing with people's sweat equity, things that they go to work for and work really hard to try to acquire, um, it it becomes kind of um, blurred lines when you have an institution telling grown adults what they should and shouldn't do with their money and how they can go about spending that money. Because some people, like they always say, you know, the Biggie Smalls line, the famous rapper where he says, uh, more money, more problems. But that case is only for certain demographics because some demographics are allowed to make a ton of money and they have less problems, like i.e. not paying as many taxes as other people. So, you know, we can go down the rabbit hole with that. But yeah, um, pretty much the welfare state is good for a um, very, very small amount of time but over the long term, I think that um, it should be done away with because it forces people to become more creative, innovative, and kind of hungry to be a go-getter.
1: It's interesting that you put it within the perspective of not allowing a person to become who they really are. One could argue that they are getting their financial needs met through this payment, but it comes with strings attached. Yep. And you're arguing that those strings attached don't essentially allow you to get to that next level. Of hierarchical needs, right? You're still feeling like perhaps there's going to be a rug pull there. You're, there's still a governor on your ability to think beyond yourself and try to find those other wants, uh, sources of pride, as you were describing.
0: Yes, correctly, Mark. And not, and not to cash any expersions here. Um, you know, you look at traditionally when you're when people when the government is dangling that type of carrot in front of people. Over time, you start to realize that those people become comfortable with with being stifled it becomes like a stockholm syndrome and i think that that's what you're seeing a lot around just not only african americans and latino ex americans but you're seeing it around all of americans look at what the stimulus checks have done to people and has done to the job market you know and that's not even really considered a lot of money a 1200 dollar check is barely going to keep you afloat you know or above the inflation hurdle rate so when you think about people just getting that little carrot and completely decimating the job market, imagine if something like universal basic income comes in, or you have people that have been on uh, welfare or food stamps for several generations. It becomes a part of your culture, your home life, and just a part of your lifestyle. So I think that um, the government's aware of that in some cases and that kind of keeps people in check and it kind of keeps people where they are.
1: Interesting perspective. I like that. So should we move on to Bitcoin? Yes. Let's do it. So, the, the ubiquitous question among every Bitcoin podcast out there is how did you get into Bitcoin, right? So, before I want you to answer that, but I want you to answer from the perspective of when you first heard about it, mm-hmm. how did Bitcoin map onto your view of the world, your politics at the time? Was it an immediate fit? Was it a perfect mesh right out from the get go? Or did it take some time for it, to, for it to come around to think, hey, this does map with my progressive
0: ideals? Great question, Mark. Um, I would say, this is a twofold question. So I'll answer the first question, which is like the political and the value-based framework around it. So my value-based system is unorthodox because I don't really adhere to the left or the right in regards to Bitcoin. I think being African-American, it's hard to believe in any political party. But during the pandemic, something very interesting happened. And I was looking into something called CWBA, I don't know if you're familiar with that but it's called the contract with black america and this was kind of created around the synergy of black economics black liberation and police reform and ice cube was one of the big spearheaders of this but there was a lot of intellectual black people around creating this this contract and this was around the time when Trump was uh getting ready to leave office and Biden was coming in vice versa no one really knew who was going to win but there was general idea that um, Biden would win the race. So Cube kind of injected himself with his fame and said, hey, uh, people from the African American demographic are kind of, you know, putting out this contract so that you can have a better understanding of where we're coming from and where we want to be. It was kind of like a, a list of demands. And a lot of the stuff that Cube wanted to make made a lot of sense, but it was the first time I've seen... Elicit demands on what needed to be done. So for example, they had lending reform, judicial reform, police reform, incentives for black businesses. And he was demanding that banking lending and financial reform was one of the things that stuck out for me because he he wanted to project and say, hey, um, black Americans should have a one-time interest-free loan for home ownership. And I think that Bitcoin falls in line with that for me because those things can be achieved without asking permission. The contract, in a sense, doesn't even really need to be created. It's just a good guideline to see where we want to go. And I think that if you acquire and accumulate Bitcoin on a mass scale, it can open up those options of a permissionless pair to peer currency that is um, exponentially has number-go-up technology. And I always think that that's a, a smart move. And Bitcoin changed my approach to that whole rainy day fund or, you know, people giving 40 plus years of sweat equity to someone else in exchange for a paycheck. I don't think that that's what the American dream is about. And I think that a a majority of people growing up looking at their future, they're not going to think that that's okay. So for me, the light bulb went off when I realized that um, Bitcoin allows you to not have to ask permission for your own American sovereignty or your own financial sovereignty. And that's where I kind of like started to really pinpoint, okay, this is starting to make sense to me.
1: So it wasn't so much that you disagreed with what Ice Cube was proposing, but rather, I'm not going to sit around waiting for that to be hashed out for the next four plus years, only to be reversed in the next administration. I'm going to take ownership of my sovereignty now via Bitcoin. Is that accurate? Precisely. Okay. So a very straightforward question, but I want that I think is very important. And that's, why do you... How do you believe Bitcoin to be good?
0: So <laughs> I love that question. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is good for many, many reasons. Um, I, I really would say, look at all the lives that is changing across the globe. That's something that I always pinpoint people to. Look, who, look how it's changing the world. Now, of course, there are nefarious actors in Bitcoin. But anytime you're dealing with money and innovation, you're going to have that issue. So I believe it's good if you do good things with it. Bitcoin magnifies whatever is put into it. That's why consensus is so important. Um, the more people that join the Bitcoin network that are kind-hearted, smart, and want to contribute to making Bitcoin better, that type of energy is going to be magnified. And I think that that's what people have to realize is that this is a number-go-up, gainful um, form of a monetary asset. So consensus-based, if everyone doesn't agree with some of the moves that people want to make or adding a layer to the network, it's not going to happen. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of people that are really kind-hearted, smart, and they want to see the world get fixed. They want to fix the money and fix the world, as Jack Mahler says. And I think that that's what we're going to start to witness as more people come into the space, gain an understanding of what Bitcoin is, and it starts to put their political kind-hearted view on the asset.
1: When you start going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you're reading philosophy, you're reading history, you're reading sociology, everything, because it relates to everything. Money relates to everything, right? Yep. But I'm curious how Bitcoin has changed your personal relationship to money. I know it has for me, but I'm curious uh, if you can expand on, on how it has changed for you.
0: Most definitely. So for me, how it's really, really changed my perspective on money is because I come traditionally from a legacy finance background. So when I first got out of college, I started to work for JP Morgan Chase, how ironically, right? And then I worked there for a few years, then I moved to State Street Bank. So my approach to money was all about leverage. It was about get a good credit score, you know, work really hard, save up your money, and then use that money to buy a home or purchase something that, you know, you really want to purchase. But I didn't really understand all of the Um, turmoil behind money or what free money printing does to an economy and what it does to hardworking people. So Bitcoin allowed me to peel back those layers and really, really sit back and really have an understanding of, hey, I'm in my early 30s right now. Where do I want to be by the time I'm in my 60s? And the money that I'm making now, is that wage going to go up? Is my 401k going to be secure? Am I going to be able to protect my family if something happens to me, God forbid? And these are all things that started to really, really hamper down on me during the pandemic because during the lockdown, all we had to do was sit down and really study and read and learn about the asset. So for me, the light bulb went off when I seen the stock market crashing and you had the liquidity crisis in March of 2020. That's when it really was like, wait a minute. So people are putting their life into Coca-Cola stock. Amazon stock, Apple stock. And there's no guarantee that there's gonna be any corruption there or um, some type of failure, whether it's inflation or overprinting or some crisis in the world. And then I started to notice Bitcoin and I'm like, during the pandemic, it was just going up and up and up because people started to use it as a hedge against inflation. And I'm like, wait a minute, why isn't anyone talking about this? This is something that is really gonna change the world, not from an aspect of, hey, I can make a bunch of money, But hey, this can actually save me and my family during times of turmoil.
1: So why did Bitcoin become more trustworthy for
0: you than Coca-Cola stock? Mainly when I started really studying about it, it had no central authority. And that was really interesting to me because I always think about how can a CEO be manipulated? How can a CEO be corrupted or bribed? And I always think about There may be some sleight of hand there when you see um, several hundred CEOs resigning from their, their, their position and selling off stock on the back end, like they were privy to something ahead of time that the public didn't know about. When you start really reading these things, it's like, wait a minute, there's something going on here. This isn't legit. And it's like, there's people with tons of shares in Coke or Apple, but it's like, if you have a bunch of Satoshis or you have one or two or three or four or five Bitcoin There's no one that can manipulate that. They can't alter it. They can't be coerced into doing something nefarious. So it's like the more you accumulate Bitcoin and you secure it properly via your private keys and you kind of have a little bit of an understanding of how to secure it, I think that that's going to put you in a position to be a winner in the face of whatever is going on politically, politically or whether it's climate change or war or anything, I think that Bitcoin is here to stay. And that's something for me personally that I really, really was attracted to because of that decentralized nature where I can go in trustless, no barrier of entry. I think Cash App has something around a dollar you can start to buy in. So there's no um, you know, fear of not having enough money of an investment to get in. And I think that that allows people to really, really pay attention to the asset. And you know that um, you know God forbid something happens to the CEO or there's issues with taxes or there's issues with um, you know a particular company doing things that you might not personally get a- agree with, whether it's something racist or something that's not you know doesn't go against your goes against your moral code. I think that Bitcoin removes a lot of that because you literally can buy in and join the network and not have any political uh, or personal ties.
1: Yeah, I think the emphasis on trust minimization is often understated because people who critique Bitcoin perhaps see it as a more a binary situation where, uh, you know, there's still points of failure within Bitcoin, but arguably less so than other companies out there, right? And so if you're if you're approaching Bitcoin, yes, there are certain there are failure points that everybody uh, is aware of, but they seem much more uh, reduced, spread out than one would think uh, looking at Coca-Cola stock over the course of you know the remainder of your career and hoping that it's still going to be there for you come age of
0: 59 and a half. Yeah, most definitely. And also, they're fighting against cost of capital. They're fighting against the inflation hurdle rate. So you're seeing a lot of companies like MicroStrategy, for example. They're putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet, and they're doing that to bolster their shares to make their shareholders happy and to make the real retail investor happy. So how are you going to, especially there's a lot of companies out there that they might have a one or 2% growth, you know, every year after lucky, depending on if they have a really good product like Apple, for example, they do really well every year because they release an iPhone every year, but there's a lot of companies that don't create a new product every year and they have to find a way to be innovative. And how do they continue to, allow the cash that they're sitting on to grow over time. And Bitcoin is the best choice for them because Bitcoin is growing at what, 200% over the last decade. So once you start to inject your money into something like that, you're going to see a lot of growth. But even better than doing that is just buying the direct asset from the source, just buying Bitcoin. And then you're going to really be a part of that 200% gain instead of a 10 or 15% gain if you buy MicroStrategy stock, for example.
1: So my next question has a long setup here, so bear with me. Um, I want to first quote from a 2019 report from the Center for American Progress that says, quote, the legacies of slavery, Jim Crow and the New Deal, as well as the limited funding and scope of anti-discrimination agencies are some of the biggest contributors to inequality in America. Together, these policy decisions concentrated workers of color in chronically undervalued occupations, end quote. So that's resulted in statistics such as black Americans who make up almost 13% of the U.S. population only hold less than 4% of uh, the wealth in the United States. That white families have eight times the wealth of the typical black family, as well as 30% of people who received inheritance were white versus just 10% of black people. So with that in mind, given those facts, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the Cantillon effect in augmenting these disparities. So in other words, is more money going to the people who originally had it uh, for a longer part of of history? And is this perhaps a reason for the increasing wealth disparities that is not being uh, discussed as readily?
0: Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think the, the canteen lawn effect refers to the change in relative prices resulting from a change in the money supply. And when you look at wages, spending habits, the ability to pass down assets such as real estate, for example, the recipients closest to that money printer are the ones that are in the convenient position of being able to spend that extra money before prices have increased or inflation eats away at it. But whoever's last in line, i.e., the people of color or people from disenfranchised, poorer communities, they receive that share of new money after the prices have increased or changed or fluctuated um, drastically. And that puts a major damper on your wealth. Uh, you know, Bitcoin fixing that is because the flow or the reward of the quote unquote money supply is fixed. It's fixed into a scarce asset that can't be altered or changed. And I think that uh, Bitcoin is hope for a lot of people. The most disenfranchised are attracted to it like a moth to a flame because they've been left out of the status quo of investing. Most white investors do not have the same, how could I call it, sense of urgency to secure their wealth because traditionally they hold most of it. Crypto is this this new thing. It's it's open to all and empowers people that otherwise would be forgotten about or outpriced. Centralization is scary because. Uh, people of color, for example, that means control, and control is usually hammered down on certain demographics more than others. When you look at the the bare necessities of what wealth is and how it's held, uh, Bitcoin adoption could disrupt that. I forgot the stats, but they're somewhere around millennials hold four point eight percent of all the wealth. Some of the oldest millennials, which are in their forties, um, they they don't hold even five percent of the wealth globally. Generation X holds. Nine or 10%. And the boomers, they hold about 20 to 25% of all the wealth, especially at the same age that millennials are right now. So, when you really think about that, that is something that has to be fixed because once the boomers retire or die off, a lot of that money is going to start to be liquidated into the generations below them. And if they don't have a great financial IQ, they don't have a way of processing and understanding what that large capital is going to do to change not only their lives but the world as a whole, I think that that is a part of the process where you're seeing some of these um, additional reasons why you're seeing this adoption rate amongst certain demographics surging because people are kind of jostling and putting themselves in position to kind of embrace that money or create an avenue to have money for, their, for, their, for themselves.
1: Right, so you're seeing a greater percentage of African-Americans and Latino X population investing in crypto than you are the white demographic. And so it's the opposite of what you see in the traditional stock market. And so that gives me hope that perhaps you can front run or reverse what we've seen play out over decades, centuries, where, again, those closest to the money spigot are most likely to benefit.
0: Exactly. And that's just something that, that's the reality. And that's something that I feel a lot of Americans are not aware of. They just think that You know, people get good jobs, they make a good wage, and some people don't get good jobs and don't make a good wage. And they don't understand what taxes are or what inflation is or what just... Um, price increases. Look at, look at what we're dealing with right now with like the grocery stores and gas prices. Like even if you have a good job, like when you have to fill up your tank every week, if you're commuting or you have a family of five or six that you have to pay to support and feed, like those costs start to compound very quickly. And it doesn't matter how much you're making. It's about how you're spending it and how effectively you're spending it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was wondering your perspective on Bitcoin as it relates to the idea of the Black dollar, and supporting Black-owned businesses in the communities that they're in. Do you
0: think there's any relationship there? Yes, definitely. Um, What the Black community faces is something called banking deserts, where there's food deserts as well, but there's banking deserts where when you come into a Black community, you don't see a lot of banks. You see liquor stores, you see, sometimes you even see gun stores. You see a lot of stores or businesses that Chinese food restaurants, for example, where there are people from other communities coming into the community and they're making money off the community. And I want to make something clear here too, is that a lot of people think that the African-American community doesn't have any capital and everything is based on poverty. But if that was true, you wouldn't see all these other businesses and demographics coming to feed off of the money that's there. So the money is there, it's just misdirected. And I think that um, my, my understanding and my thought process around Bitcoin is that I think that if we get more Black banks in those communities where you have a better opportunity to remove biased, to remove racism, where you can secure a loan for a home and you can peg that with like my thoughts is like this, you can use Bitcoin as your savings account and use a Black bank or bank, a credit union, whatever the case may be as your checking account. So you use that to leverage yourself and get yourself in a better position, whether it's getting a mortgage, getting a car loan, just getting yourself off of zero so that you can actually start to buy a car to start making capital to go to work or owning your first home so you can start to get equity on it. And I think that you should scrap the 401k, the IRA ideas, and really just use that as your form of savings in Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is the most secure asset out there. The 401k is a lot of them are pegged to bonds. If you look at the bond market right now, it's scary. I wouldn't have a dollar in bonds if you were smart. And any smart investor is not doing that. Even Ray Dalio scrapping them. So I think that Black people should definitely adopt Bitcoin as their savings account at minimum. And then anything else that they want to do with their money, they should try to look towards more of a Black banking institution that removes a lot of that bias or just using their savings account as a way to like mine fiat and then shovel that into Bitcoin as a long-term savings play. Um, There's a company, uh, one of my close friends, my brother, John Logan, he has a company called Black Bank USA. And essentially what it is, it's a website you go to and you literally can search in a directory of a map of the United States. You put in your zip code or your address and it will actually pinpoint where the closest Black Bank is to your neighborhood, your city or your state. So there's a, there's a lot of Black banks out there, but there's they're just not in a lot of the, the mainstream African-American communities. So you might have to do a little bit of traveling or commuting to get to that Black bank. And if you don't own a vehicle, it might be difficult, but you'll see a lot of check cashers or payday loans in that community, but you won't see a lot of credit unions or traditional banks. And we already elucidated on what payday loans and credit unions do, but it's just more beneficial for you to open a bank account Put your check into a check-ins account with a bank than actually putting it into a check cashers who's going to take a ten or a fifteen dollar fee off of the taxes you're already being taxed by the government so it makes you have to it's almost like you're being robbed without a gun <laughs> when 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 you go to a check cashers versus the bank account might take their monthly fee every month, but you can actually keep your money in there and let it let it compound over time
1: in a the recent Time magazine article that I'm sure you're familiar with black America and Bitcoin yep. Sinclair uh, Skinner is quoted as saying, quote, the Internet was supposed to be decentralized, and today it's owned by four white men. But with the right people involved from the start of the next wave of change, crypto, the possibilities are endless, end quote. I'm wondering, do you fear at all uh, a pull towards centralization in the same manner uh, as the Internet exists in practice? Do you think there is a, a force for centralization within the Bitcoin network?
0: Um, Yes and no. So to answer your question, I would say it like this. I think that there is a push for centralization in Bitcoin, but I don't think that it's really going to be possible. Just because of the nature of what Bitcoin is, I don't think that it's going to have the ability to be centralized. So it's like a flip of a coin. Some progressives are calling for like much more tougher regulation around Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And some want to eat the rich in a sense. A lot of the progressives that force that focus on how much solely somebody has or how much solely the wealthy have is, um, you know, an honorable thing to do. But at the same time, that money that is, quote unquote, the root of all evil is a narrative that's unwavering. And I think that you're seeing governments attempt to centralize Bitcoin by taxing it or taxing people for a taxable event if they spend it on certain things or they trade it for certain other cryptocurrencies But I think ultimately, as time goes on, you're going to see people start to build layers around the network, i.e. Lightning Network, for example, Taproot, which I think is really, really going to kind of stifle that whole centralization conversation because you're going to have snore contracts. You're going to have digital signatures. You're going to have smart contracts where people can have a peer to peer interaction outside of a government institution telling them what to do or how to do it. And we can strike up a, a business deal in a smart contract on a Bitcoin network and we both honor that contract and we don't have any middleman to tell us what to do or have, you know, his nose sticking in uh, that business transaction. And I think that that's just going to be the conversation moving forward for a lot of people. It's going to be all about decentralization and kind of being in control of your own destiny.
1: So listeners may be hearing you talk about their government, quote unquote, getting their knows in your business. And I think for people who are left of center, they may think that's the initiative that they they want to a certain degree, but they want a central authority to intervene to allow these uh, interventions to improve people's lives, quote unquote. But I think the shift in my thinking has been toward what ultimately are you after? What is it that you want for your family? What is it that you want for yourself? And perhaps what do you want for others? Like if you can distill down any political affiliation to that sentiment, to those questions, it's it's freed me from thinking that a central authority, i.e. the government necessarily needs to be the entity by which those things are obtained. So if it is Equity that you want for people—if it is freedom of speech, if it is freedom of religion, etc.—are there other means of obtaining those goals without a central authority? Because if those are, in fact, your goals, the means perhaps should not be as much in question. Would you agree?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, to answer your question, Mark, it's kind of uh, its multi-multi layered. So I would say that what I'm really inspiring to to achieve. And what I would love to see is just a level playing field. You don't want to have people with with one hand tied behind their back in this accumulation race and in the wealth race. So for me as an African-American male, I don't necessarily want a handout. I want to be able to make money in my community with people that look like me in unison and have that be okay and not have people say that, you know, I'm pulling the race card or um, I'm being one-sided about particular things. And I think that a great antidote to a lot of these issues that we're seeing is that, like you mentioned earlier, we just need to have a global consensus and a global crowdfunding type of mentality where kind-hearted people see people in need and they can globally or collectively kind of fund that and say like, sort of like a GoFundMe, but obviously on the Bitcoin network where Um, You know, we have a high level of of homelessness in LA, and people can see that on the media. They can see that on the internet, and it's real and tangible to them. They know that that really exists in the world. And instead of the billions of dollars we spend on whatever the government spends money on, we can start to focus in on those ills of society. And then you'll start to see people come around and turn around and actually start to care about some of these issues. Because, um, you know, like Jay Z says, we're not free till we're all free. So it's like, if I have a bunch of money in my neighborhood and I'm a millionaire, but everybody else around me is starving, it's only a matter of time before I'm on the menu. So I think that, um, you know, once people remove that barrier of what money is and what another person has, and they can realize that if they fall short of their, their, their success, that um, they have a community and they have a world that will support and bolster that.
1: Absolutely. I, I agree. We look at I think I've had the tendency in my past to look at others who don't feel the same way that I do, and I I can't understand, you know, why they don't feel as passionate about certain progressive ideals. But through studying Bitcoin, uh, it's occurred to me that if you, like you said, if you are not free, if you are living in fear for whatever reason, primarily financially, how can you give a damn about some of these other progressive issues that we are concerned about, whether that be climate change or poverty or otherwise. If a person can't meet their basic needs, their financial needs, how can I expect that person to care as passionately about those other issues as I do? And I don't believe that they can. And so if you can fix that, then we can start the further conversation of, you know, please then in turn look at some of these broader societal as well as global issues.
0: Yes, most definitely. And I think that we're, we're on the path to getting there. You know, it's not going to be easy. And anytime you go through any transitionary periods in, in, in society where you have um, going from the industrial age to the digital age, for example, there's always going to be some growing pains during those periods. And I think that we're going through some of those growing pains right now. And we're seeing the world change rapidly, whether it's AI, Bitcoin, um, the change of money and what people are. Um, look at is what currency is. I think that you're seeing a lot of these major changes in the world and it seems scary right now, but I think ultimately um, humanity is gonna wake up and people are gonna start caring about people more and people are gonna start to really wanna see uh, a future and a better world for their, for their kids and their grandkids. I
1: have two more questions for you, Dadu. One is, what is your dream for Bitcoin in black
0: America? My dream for Bitcoin in Black America is that uh, there's a a kind of a saying that uh, is going around the BBB circles where, well, there's two sayings. One saying is keep it 100, where Brother Miller L talks about this a lot, where he's saying if every Black person in America saved at least $100 in Bitcoin, we'd find ourselves out of uh, poverty. We'd find ourselves in a position where we can be sovereign because there's around 40 million African-Americans in America right now. So if each one of those African-Americans harnesses hundred dollars, now you're talking about, you know, a lot of money in the billions now where you're free to do whatever you want with that money is permissionless and you can start to build up your own communities. And you didn't have to ask anyone for that. You didn't have to acquire a loan. You literally got it out the mud and you did it on your own for your community. Second fold to that is, uh, BBB has a big thing where, when they're orange-pilling people, they try to get people to at least become a Satoshi millionaire, which is you own at least a million satoshis as a start. Once you get to a million satoshis, then you can start to accumulate at a higher rate. But you're not really getting off zero till you get to a million. So I would just love to see um, my community and other communities that are disenfranchised, whether it's women you know, people from different uh, gender roles where they can find themselves in a position where they can make ends meet and the money doesn't seem like it's fleeting from you, where we all can live the American dream and you don't have to have a mansion and seven cars out front, but you should be able to have all your bills paid, have food in your belly and have a roof over your head where you're, you're, you feel secure that people in this community uh, care about you and politically people care about you and they want to see you win just like the next man and your neighbor. Everyone should be able to be in a place of unison under the flag of we're Americans. And it doesn't matter where you come from, what color you are, or what your religion is. Beautiful. Last question, Daru.
1: Besides Bitcoin, what gives you hope?
0: What gives me hope is the level of innovation that I'm seeing. And what also what gives me hope is the writings that I'm creating and people gravitating to those writings. Because a lot of times I've been writing for, I started writing, I wrote my first book in 2015. And since then, I've just been really harping away at getting the message out there to say, hey, there's a change coming. Something's in the air now. It's not like how it was back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where things were centralized. There were a couple of major players. Now with the, with the advent of the internet, it allows you to get information globally at the speed of light at any hour of the day. And you can start to decipher and make your own decisions about life and what you've been taught. So it's like learning and unlearning. And I'm really hopeful for the future because even in the midst of the pandemic and all the crazy things that you're seeing going on politically and globally, I think that there's a lot of people that are working really hard behind the scenes to make that change, to make things change for their communities, for politics, for the healthcare system, for the banking system. You're seeing a lot of it, but it's not being highlighted. And I think that that's what's coming down the pipeline. And I'm just doing my part as a writer to make sure that some of those people can be educated and can kind of learn a different approach to different demographics that may not have it as easy or as well laid out as other people.
1: You give me hope. You nailed it. That was beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Well, before we close out here, any final thoughts or questions that you have from your end?
0: Final thoughts, Mark, I would say is um, continue to educate yourself, buy more Bitcoin, stack your Satoshi, secure it properly, and to make sure that no matter what you do, always try to be progressive in your thoughts and always try to think about humanity on a global scale and not just your individual thought process or what you have going on in your community, because we are all one in a sense. And yes, there's different Uh, demographics, there's different cultures, there's different approaches to the way that people go about doing things. But I think that if people are allowed to live in their truth and really express themselves, whether they're Black, Hispanic, Asian, white, whatever the case may be, as long as they're able to truly express who they are and have the world embrace that without some type of compromise or um, segregation, I think that humanity will remove that layer of colorism or racism or segregation. And they'll start to just think about how do they innovate as a human race. Fantastic.
1: Love it. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Dadu. I can't wait to see you in person someday soon. All right.
0: righty Thank you, Mark.